in its context, it's appropriate to where we will be going. Shared this with the brothers on Friday, but I think it's a great segue into our teaching. So I'm directing your eyes to Proverbs 29, verse 2. See if this relates in some manner to our times today. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at God. Don't get mad at the system. Get serious about prayer. Be sincere in what God has enabled the church to do, which is to call upon him, to call upon him in spirit and in truth and confident that he's got everything in control when it feels quite out of control. Verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, and when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Don't be offended. This is the word of God. We've all got our picks. We've all got our favorites. We've all got our political influences. That's not the point. The point that God is making is that he's pointing to himself. In the scriptures, he's saying, I am the solution. I am the answer. I am the great I am. Apart from me, Jesus would say, you can do nothing. So this either tells us that we are very much straying from him or have, and we can do nothing. Or this is just circumstance, politics, nothing big. We'll get over it. Don't worry about it. But I think there's great concern to be worried about a direction that our country is going for. I see the parallels that are in similitude to what Israel went in a split kingdom. Remember that at the time that we are looking back on Israel, we have also reflected looking back on our country. And in the years that have been prevailing right now in Israel's time in Scripture, we have made that kind of close proximity that this would put us into the time of our presidency in JFK. And probably right now, we're actually looking more at Eisenhower's presidency, who preceded John F. Kennedy's presidency. And so I take you down memory lane to realize how fast we would say, in decline, we have gone straying from the Lord and how the world is mocking the work of God and through the church and how even the church may not be taking as seriously these times as we ought to. But I also believe, and I'll move through a few more of these verses, that the church is not to be discouraged even in the areas that ought to concern us, which is the governance of our country. As many of you know, there is a fight to determine the governance of our country, and there should be. But the question is, whose side are we on? Themans or usans? Or are we on God's side? What does God have to say in his word about the conduct of a nation and about the heart of any nation towards his people, his nation, 
What does God have to say about that? So when I read this, it is pertinent to where we are because we have a country that's groaning. One, because it's a split of what one part of the country believes we need to do and what another part of the country believes we ought to do. And it's split. Is it because of religious or spiritual convictions that are rooted in the Word of God, or is it sim simply secular psychology? Just the things that we've determined as little gods we want done in building our world. It says in verse 4 that a king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. Bribes do not necessarily mean the transfer of currency. It could mean the transfer of persuasive positions being offered in lieu of somebody joining in league with what they know ought not be their alliance. We need those who, with the authority that God can give, and with the purity of heart, desire to govern, to please God, whom in their governance will also please the people. It says that in verse 6, by transgression an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. Eventually the evil man will be ensnared. But in the meantime, are we choosing as God's people to be able to sing and rejoice? Rivers is taking us through Revelation. It is a book that conclusively says that the plan of God is predictable and that it is going to lead ultimately to his satisfaction in bringing the church up and cleansing the world of sin through judgment. And there's time left, and God's interested in that time, to be used wisely and effectually. Let me continue on, verse 8. Catch this one. Not difficult to see because we actually have seen it in the news over the past three years. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. We are to be wise, and we are also to be gentle. We're to be those who can speak truth in grace, but we do not apologize for the hard word to be heard. I have several of my kids' notifications about how certain young men, friends of theirs, are doing or are not doing. And I've appreciated their texting and pointing to the Lord and challenging thought and saying, praying for you and seeing what the echo of that is. And it has been with resistance, but with respect, respectful resistance. That is a inexcusable as far as God would say, a respectful resistance 
will only bring about inevitably a consequence, for it is wickedness clothed as simply a justifiable opinion. Our cities have been set aflame and politics have kindled even a greater fire. It's interesting because we left off last week in our teaching with the admonition, spring's coming, be ready. The Syrians are still planning war against you. That's a picture literally of the Syrian nation at that time. We'll get there. But it's a picture of our world system here. Be ready for spring. Because as much as you want to say rest, wait it out, the Lord would say, in a battle, there's no resting. There's not any relaxing. Moving here, verse 10, the bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. Isn't that so like Jesus that in this Proverbs it has the picture of a person turning their cheek, their other cheek? That is a difficult one, isn't it? When we ourselves are battling with a world that is vicious, malicious, hurtful, and doesn't care. Nevertheless, it would stand that one of our strategies is not what we can do in force, but we can enforce the work of God through prayer, meaningful dialogue to the Lord and with the people that are following the Lord. Verse 12, and I'll conclude here to bring us into the teaching if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. All right, we're ready now for a return. In chapter 20 of last week, the last verse that we left off of was... And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself. Take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. This is to Ahab. This is indicative of a victory that God gave to him using the young princes of his day but nevertheless being required to be overseeing it. Interesting. By certainty, not a good man, but how much we have seen a good and gracious God deal with him when in what he has done, the transgressions that he has permitted to permeate the land and influence the sinful behavior of God's people, the Lord just seems to endure and grant patience. We do know that as the pages turn, Ahab will be judged. This Syrian king 
is going to be judged, there will be prophets that will come up on the scene, different voices, but the same heart that both Elijah and Elisha have for God. They will be speaking truth in power and to power. They're the voice of God. They're the voice of reason. And so with this prelude, the Lord, I believe, would say to us, are you ready? Are you ready for the season, the next season? It's interesting because technically we're moved from fall very shortly to what is the season of winter. And we know that when winter breaks, spring comes upon us. And it is to be a time in which there is new life when the barrenness of winter gives way to the youthfulness of a fresh start. I wanted to share this with you because it's important to see from our contemporary times what one nation is having to battle right now. There was an election in Israel. It was for prime minister. The prime minister has much power and weight, different than what our democracy is set up for. The president is almost as an institutional player, more like what the monarchy is in Great Britain. The prime minister is the one that truly has a, the power behind much of the influence but Amir posted today something that we need to see that puts them once again in harm's way and at odds with the world. Last Saturday evening, the UN Special Committee on Politics and Decolonialization passed an official resolution instructing the International Court of Justice in The Hague to initiate legal proceedings, note, against Israel on the grounds that its presence in Judea and Samaria is illegal. So let me tell you that in these two areas, God has given that land to Israel. There's no question or apology to it. And what we would say are the nations that are united against Israel decide to pull a vote saying that they are illegally occupying it. Well, this is a spiritual matter that God has already solved. And it is interesting because Samaria is the capital in our text of where Israel, the split kingdom, the northern kingdom that Ahab is in charge of, that's where they're at. Judah would be that southern kingdom, not really too far from where Samaria is at a little bit over 20 miles or so to at least border to border, but they're called the Southern Kingdom. And so even as we look at this, we're looking at in our scriptures, a divided kingdom, and we're looking at these guys saying, it's not even theirs regardless. But the scriptures say, yeah, it was. It was all of David's. It was all of Solomon's. It got split under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. 
98 countries supported the resolution, including countries for whom war crimes are a sport. For example, Ukraine and Russia, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Algeria, Angola, Sudan, and more. That was just a little blurb, which I thought was so pertinent in it coming on this update from Israel, from a man who loves the Lord and is serving him in the capacity of both being a pastor, but a politician too. And he was one who summoned really the world, the community of churches as a whole, to be praying and fasting. Well, we did. Look who they got. They actually got a very good prime minister. The next week, we're summoned to pray and fast. Did we? This is not an indictment. I'm just asking myself, did we not pray as hard for the United States as we did for Israel? But here's what I want to also say. If a victory that seemingly was in the hands of the conservative movement were given with such indulgence of overwhelming the odds. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? A political party does. Did we not pray hard enough, or is it do we get what we get until we've had enough? And people, not simply in the local church, but as a nation, rise up to say, they've got the answer. We've got the problem. And so God allows these predicaments to season the spiritual tenacity of the church and to create a thirst and a hunger for the world. That's where we left off. Verse 23. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain... Surely we will be stronger than they. So they've got it wrong because they're not pointing to the Trinity, the plurality of God, Elohim. They're simply saying Israel's got gods and their, their hangout, their power is in these mountains, these hills. We need to bring them down to our game field and play them on our turf. This is highly offensive to God. This is the suggestion is that if we change strategies and we bring them to where we're better in our operation militarily, they'll fall. They're not recognizing they got a shellacking because God was defending Israel. And it says this, do this thing, dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. So 32 kings are being displaced. And captains are being put in to replace them. We're not sure of necessarily the strategy, except it may be that for them, the strategy is the captains are able to be sacrificed but the kings we want to save them 
And a lot of political systems are built on that too. Sacrifice those who we can do without and get others and save the ones that have the power and authority and influence and the treasuries. Save them. Could be. You're going to muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. This is Benadab who's listening to the voice of counsel right now, which is also our vulnerability is to listen to the voice of counsel contrary to God's word and God's ways, to be able to find ourselves compromising, justifying. It's our vulnerability too. Who's God of your mountain, your hill? Who's God of your valley? Who's God of your desert? Well, our God is the God of Israel. And our God is the one by whom our constitution had been drafted to be presiding as God, one nation under God. If we're one nation under God, then how could we be divided as a nation contrary to God? Because what happened to Israel, we as a nation are equally vulnerable to. Even as there are good people and spiritual people in this land, there were back in those days as well. How else do you explain guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and others such as them? Prophets that God had purposed to both utilize and to powerfully deliver his message. And so it was in verse 26, in the spring of the year that Benadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions and they were against them. Now the children of Israel, it says, encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Does God still choose to use for receiving greater glory the few that have a willing heart than masses that say they have a heart? And the question can be answered affirmatively, yes. Even the danger of having a political party that would say it's closer to the heart of God than the other is in danger of pride and arrogance to be so overwhelmingly a majority. God still works with a minority, and God still works seemingly with the advantage given over to the enemy. What do we do? What do we do? And so this advantage right now would be clearly one that's presumed and not really appreciating what God is saying. I use a little nation, people that are not very big to anybody's eyes but mine, and I give the victory and I give the battle strategy. 
And so a lot of what even we feel right now is America the Great. Make America great. Those are fine. I don't think that there should be anything on a national level that says we cannot take pride in a nation that we acknowledge God has been good to. As long as we are following the God who this nation is to be honoring in our branches of government, the judiciary, the Congress comprised of both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Tensions are not wrong unless they are detentions from God's will. Tensions are fine. God works and moves through the tensions that he's allowed to exist between peoples as long as what that leads them to is the answer that only God can provide. And so we're not to take offense on this either. Oh, Lord, the church is so small. We're like little goats in this world of giants. They've got all the power. They've got all the influence. Their threats are completely heinous to us. We're afraid of them. Like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. They were overwhelmed. Israel has been overwhelmed since it occupied its land back in 1948. Overwhelmed against all odds. And all we ever see is the defense of that land and the prosperity in the land, the things that God has allowed them to do. And you sure wish that the blinders would be removed from their eyes and they could see as we see. But praise the Lord for the eyes of those who, as Israelis, both women and men, have come to see Messiah as we see Messiah. And guess who, what that makes them? They're Jewish in heritage and lineage, but they're Christians as believers. They're a part, as we are, of what the Lord came to do, which was to break down that dividing wall. As little goats, they're surrounded by this massive Syrian army And then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God has taken offense as to the mockery of what they are saying about him. It is God who can take offense on the world that mocks him as to being just over there or over here or in that church. God takes the personal affront. And if it were not for his patience and grace and mercy, pending judgment, there would be no one that could stand. It's an amazing thing when you see what God will do in the patience that he grants that someone might turn towards him, a nation might repent and call upon him. 
Verse 29, they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel, it says, killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day, but the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall, notice this, fell on 27,000 of the men who were left and Benadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. In this session, their army is obliterated. And the king that had all the power and the threats and seemingly everything to his advantage runs like a coward into an inner chamber. Well, there's an inner chamber that some of those who govern in places of great authority and over the lives of those whom they are to be taken care of they also will find need perhaps as cowards to go into an inner chamber. I would suggest before they find something in a city that they had oversight of that is falling, they should come into an inner chamber that we would call the church and to ask God for forgiveness and to repent of how they have squandered their gift of authority and power. A position, how they can influence now in the latter part of their life and even before consequence takes them. It's not too late for that to happen in our Congress, the House, and the Senate. I've been to Greece, roughly in the spot where Paul gave his discourse, Mars Hill. I've been to Washington, D.C., I was born in Virginia. They call that Capitol Hill. I've been to two hills. Both of them are considered historically the mark of democracy. Both of them, one in particular has vanished off the pages. You can see the leftover Parthenon. You can see all of the marble that has survived the onslaught of the ages, but it only is the bones and skeletons of a former society. The Lord used them. The New Testament's written in Greek, but they left the Lord obviously at the height of their power because they served pagan deity. And so therefore in Capitol Hill, we are just as, as vulnerable as the Greeks ultimately were in their history, and are even presently. There's a good influence of Christianity there, and obviously in those areas, Paul delivered the gospel. But we have a Capitol Hill that will also be under the threat of a consequence in abandoning the God of the hills, the God of the valley the sovereign God of the entire world. And so there's a decimation right now. Israel has prevailed, but it's not simply for the sake of Ahab or even the citizenry. It's God speaking up about himself. I will not be mocked, and I will use my small nation, but I will use my power to take them out. It means that they will say, how did this happen? What just happened? Even as some of us and others in the political area may be saying, 
what just happened? And God would say, I am the God of the hills and of the valleys. And even though it may not be precisely as you had calculated, I've calculated all things to perfection and to provision for my namesake. Because the greatest hill right now that the Lord would have us look at, that we do as a church, is called Golgotha or Calvary. Both of them have deep meanings with regard to history, but we understand it's the place in which the cross was the instrument by which Jesus reconciled the world to himself, to his Father, by dying on. That's a hill. And you go there, and you see presumptively where it is at. We certainly have a clear idea of where the garden tomb is. There's a mystery still on where that cross was at. I think that the Lord has probably left that to be a mystery, though it's factual. Jesus would say, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. It will not be in Greece at Mars Hill, and it will not be in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Hill. It will be at my hill. And so the Lord's turning eyes towards his hill, because he ultimately is the God who went to that hill, that he might lead his flock through the valley to shepherd them, his people. Verse 31 to 34 will conclude here, but let me read it and give you some points on it. Then his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. They are hearing probably a truth that Israel moved compassionately towards their enemies and at times regretted it severely. And so they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servants, Benadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him, and they quickly grasped at his word and said, Your brother Benadad. And so he said, Go bring him. And then Benadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Benadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. And so he made a treaty with him and sent him away. And this is the world system that desires to be appeased by what we would call, call a compromise to what God has said, no compromise in sin, not allowable. It needs to be eradicated. In essence, what Benadab had done was to, in his cowardice, move to resign. He comes to Israel for the purpose of being spared his life. 
And then he fosters this belief with Ahab that we can be friends. Why can't we be friends? You can have everything that my father took away from you. We'll make an alliance. You form a treaty with us. Guess what? This is a picture of what Israel is vulnerable to and what the United States is vulnerable to. Do you realize that when Antichrist comes on the scene, he will endeavor to make a treaty with Israel to do what? To occupy and ultimately satisfy. The book of Revelation tells us blasphemy in the temple. This is a picture of that. Whenever Israel is asked to forge a treaty with the world system, it leads us to believe that it is simply a foretaste of what ultimately they will do when the time comes that the church is taken out of the world and the world then deals with warfare unlike any that has been seen captured in history ever because it will be truly at war with God and God is not going to lose. But Israel will be a nation that will then come to terms with signing a treaty and recognizing that they had been deceived. So as it was with Israel back then, as we'll continue to see historically what happens to them, it can be for us too. The treaties that are being asked of us to forge with the world system, it has been said, and I think probably very accurately, that even this insistence on climate control or global warming to handle and resolve it has become a religion of the world system today. Now think about this. Elijah had done warfare on behalf of God for Israel, challenging Baal. Baal, in essence, was the climate czar God of his day. He was the one in whom they would kill, sacrifice lives to appease because he was considered the weather god. They obviously had concerns about global warming then too and drought and all of these things. And so to one degree or another, we can see even perhaps a swing of the pendulum saying, those days we live in now too. We have a world God similar to Baal, only right now it's just simply called scientifically a global warming. We need to change who we are, how we do things. We need to bow down to that philosophy, that mentality. Nothing wrong in managing our world, but we don't bow down to changes that scientifically can be seen as patterns in weather. So there is that that's paralleled here. We're going to go ahead and pray right now. And as we do so, we're going to take opportunity to call the brothers forward for the ministry of the tithes and of the offerings. And we're going to enjoy a closing time in our worship set. And then we'll have a benediction 
on our service today. Lord, we ask for your blessings now, and we thank you for our time. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessings, Lord, on the rendering of who we are through the resources of what you've given to us, the investment that it means to the work, Lord, that we enjoy and ultimately that pleases you. And so even now, allow us to have this wonderful time of reflecting in song, what you've taught us in your word, and what you're challenging us in right now as believers in these days that are wicked. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.